0: of God, these copyright expired songs are getting worse. This one is When the Leaves Come Tumbling Down by Richard Howard. You know, I normally start by kind of riffing on the copyright expired song. I'm not going to do that today because there's something I actually want to talk about before we get to the meat of the podcast. So the only thing I'll say about When the Leaves Come Tumbling Down is that leaves don't tumble, they fall. Kind of famously, they float softly to the ground. Poorly done, Richard Howard. You deserve to be dead. Let's fade Richard Howard out. So as I record this on Monday morning, all of Twitter is talking about this new compilation of Joe Rogan saying the N-word many times on his podcast throughout the years, going back some distance. There is also a quote about Planet of the Apes that seems very bad, though I haven't heard the context, so I'm going to withhold judgment on that until I do. So I might be the only person in the world with no strong opinion on Joe Rogan. I don't really listen to his podcast. I don't really care about all this stuff involving him. There are two things that I know I'm supposed to have a strong opinion on, and I just don't. Joe Rogan and the city of New York. You're supposed to either love New York or hate it. I think it's just, it's fine. It's okay. Pros and cons. So I don't want to either take his side or be against him here. But because people are talking about comedy, and specifically stand-up comedy, and specifically stand-up comedy as existed a little while ago, I do want to say one simple thing on the topic, and that is, whatever is acceptable and not acceptable today, that is different from what was acceptable and not acceptable 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. This feels incredibly obvious, but it also feels like it's being memory-holed a little bit in certain parts of Twitter. So... As somebody who started doing stand-up in 2005 and did it straight through, well, COVID is when I stopped, did it straight until 2020 pretty much, I can offer first-person testimony and say that what people found acceptable, and I am talking about the audiences, which were, you know, very racially mixed where I was because I started in D.C., then eventually New York, what audiences found acceptable back then? So this includes large numbers of black people. It was different. And maybe the standard back then was bad, and it's good that we're evolving. I'm a person who's very comfortable with the concept of change. I think changing standards, changing expectations, that's very often what progress looks like. And for many people today, the standard is, if you're white, just don't say the word ever, 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 ever. ever. Context doesn't matter. Ever, 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 just never, ever, ever the syllables passing through your lips. To which I say... Fair enough. I'm in the market for that. I mean, honestly, I do worry about two things. Number one, as I've written before, when something is presented as this is what black people want, I do want to know that that is actually the majority opinion among most black people. And I'm sensitive to this because there have been several recent examples of white liberals guessing at what black people want and getting it wrong, at which point you basically have white liberals pretending that their opinions are the opinions of black people, and that's not a good practice, I have heard more than one black person say, it is insulting to think that I can't tell the difference between mentioning the word and using the word. I have heard that said. Of course, I have also heard black people say, the rule I would be comfortable with is just never, ever, ever don't say it ever in any context ever. Fair enough. I just want to know what people actually want. The second thing I worry about is I do worry about the highly unusual situations. What if you're an actor? What if you're testifying in court? What, what are the rules there? I do wonder, like, could you make 12 Years a Slave these days? Could you make Django Unchained? Are you going to make them and just have all the white actors? Are you going to just, like, dance around the N-words? That does kind of remind me of back in the day <laughs> when network censors would be like, instead of saying asshole, could you say toot hatch? Like, I'm not going to say toot hatch. Nobody speaks like that. Also, by the way, as uncommon as those situations are, I have once played Confederate Vice President Alexander Stevens on television. I did his voice on an episode of Last Week Tonight, and there's a racial slur in there. Thankfully, it's not the N-word, but it's Confederate Vice President Alexander Stevens. So guess what? The guy was a little bit racist, and he used a racial slur, and I am on tape saying it on TV because I'm playing Confederate Vice President Alexander Stevens. Luckily for me, it's not the N-word, but it's a really bad one. I mean, you wouldn't say it in your actual life. Anyway, the point is, I wonder about the answers to those questions, but if the decision is the good rule here is just don't say it in any context, no matter what, I'm on board. I will co-sign that rule. If that is the right thing to do, to be a good friend and good neighbor, I am on board. But let's acknowledge that as a rule we are establishing now, 10, 15, whatever years ago, the rule was a little different. And we have archaeological evidence of this. I mean, I remember a comic whose name I'm not going to say because he doesn't want to be dragged into this, but using it during the fucking monologue on SNL in the context of a joke where the point was this word is a bad word. That used to be the context in which a white comic using it was again, the audiences were voting on this in large numbers, that was considered okay. It was considered okay if you're making the point, this is a bad word, this is a word that should not be said. If a person calls a person this word, they are doing a bad thing. And when the Chappelle thing happened, I talked about a transphobic joke that I had in my act in the early, early days of my stand-up, 2005. I talked about a transphobic joke that I had, and why I did it, and what was going through my head, I got some responses. People thought that was kind of interesting. You can hear that, by the way. It's in the podcast episode called Facebook Isn't the Problem. Facebook is the software the problem currently uses. Some people liked hearing my thought process on that. So, since people seem to like that, I thought I'd do a similar thing here, because I have used the N-word on stage exactly one time, and it didn't really feel right, and I didn't do it again. But here is one white comic's first-person account of the thought process I went through. So this is about 2012, 2013, which was a time when, if you used the N-word on stage, it was done, but it was definitely a choice. It was a big swing. It had some shock value to it. I've never been a big shock value guy. I'm not really an edgelord type. I put it in the joke. Because... If you hear the joke in context, and you will in a minute because I'll tell it, the punchline just kind of needs the actual word. The phrase, the N-word, isn't really going to cut it in that moment. And of course, I'm using it in the context of this is a very bad word. This is a word you should not say. My feeling was when that is the takeaway from the joke, it's used as acceptable. And here's the joke. So in the joke, I say the phrase, the N-word, two times. And then the third time I say the actual word, of course, here on the podcast, I'm just going to use the phrase, the N-word, all three times because I'm recording in 2022 and standards have changed. But back in 2012, 13, or whatever it was, the joke went a little something like this. It was in this chunk I had about being a speechwriter. So I would say, so I'm a speechwriter. I get people asking me for help with wedding toasts all the time because I'm a speechwriter. What they're forgetting is I am also an asshole. So when people come up and say, hey, I'm giving a speech, you got any tips? I'd go, yep, just don't say the n-word. Which was funny to me, because when somebody tells you, just don't say the n-word, that is the only word that is in your head. No matter what you have prepped, no matter what is on your note card, when you're up there giving the speech, you're going to go, n-word, oh, damn it. Oh, I was supposed to say we met in college. End scene. So that is the joke. And the first thing you'll notice, of course, is that the joke isn't very good. (laughs) It's similar similar to my transphobic joke. The joke is not that good. That's a C minus joke at best. And for what it's worth, I told that joke in a very mixed race room. There were absolutely, you know, many black people in the audience, including other black comics on the show. So there was no part of my brain that was thinking, Oh, I'm getting away with something here. I was definitely thinking this is okay. And certainly nobody said anything to me about it ever. It was a non-event. The joke didn't go that well. Again, it's not that good of a joke. The joke didn't go that well. And I'll tell you, it just kind of didn't feel right. I'm not sure I would say that I violated any norms that existed at the time, but it just kind of didn't feel right for me. And I did never do it again. And certainly now that... I don't know if this is the dominant view, but now that there are many people who are saying, I just don't want to ever hear the word ever. I certainly wouldn't do that again. I'm not on stage to make people uncomfortable. I want them to have a good time. And moreover, I want to be welcoming to people and not be an asshole. So that's one comic's thought process. Maybe it's quite relevant to Joe Rogan's circumstance. Maybe it's not very relevant at all. I don't care enough about the situation to really investigate and reach a verdict, but there you have it. It is 2022 now. We have new standards and societal understandings. Let's just not pretend that the rules as they exist now were always the rules. That's just silly. Let's get to the meat of this thing. And of course, as always, this episode and many other articles that I've written can be found on my Substack, which is called I Might Be Wrong. That's I imightberwrong.substack.com. And today's episode is the Supreme Court should be less of a ghoulish parlor game in which we try to guess when people will die. I wanted to write this because Stephen Breyer is retiring. We're going to have a new justice. I have felt for a very long time that the way we cycle justices through the court is just weird. It is way too dependent on when people happen to die. Probably nothing has shaped the court more in recent years than the exact timing of Antonine Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg's deaths. This is a weird way to do things. I think it's past time to ask ourselves, is this a good way to do things? So, the title is The Supreme Court Should Be Less of a Ghoulish Parlor Game in Which We Try to Guess When People Will Die, subheading A Proposal for Court Reform. So, I've spent the past year thinking there is no possible way that Stephen Breyer is too dumb to not know that he has to retire before the 2022 midterms. And indeed... Stephen Breyer is not too dumb to know that. He is retiring, all credit to Justice Breyer. If nothing else, he has saved me from the prospect of having to spend another Republican presidency keeping tabs on the health of an octogenarian liberal justice. That is huge. I could not go through that absolute fucking nonsense we went through with Ruth Bader Ginsburg again. The the workouts, the workouts, (laughs) the workouts that were always everywhere of her lifting like half pound dumbbells in that super diva t-shirt. Why, why did we think that you can beat cancer with dumbbell curls? You can't, you cannot, it's cancer. The fact that liberals spent three and a half years trying to convince ourselves that you can girl boss cancer into remission is one of the more pathetic cases of mass delusion in recent memory. Of course, every justice other than Ginsburg and Scalia understood, in recent times, understood that you need to retire when your party, and by the way, another delusion I will not indulge is that justices don't have parties, you need to retire when your party controls the White House and preferably also the Senate. We live in an era Of strategically timed retirements, which is also an era in which Senate norms have been shattered into a thousand pieces. And the Grim Reaper, by the way, clearly leans conservative. Those factors are the main reason why we have these stats. So here are the number of Supreme Court seats filled per four-year term by our most recent presidents. So seats per four-year term. Donald Trump Three. He got three. Lucky bastard. Barack Obama missed that guy. Got one. George W. Bush also got one. Bill Clinton got one per term. George H.W. Bush got two. Ronald Reagan. Hey, the airport guy. Ronald Reagan got two. Jimmy Carter. Goose egg. Shut out for Jimmy Carter. So Trump served a term and got three. Jimmy Carter served a term and got zero. Have you ever wondered, by the way, what is going to happen? The next time a seat comes open while the White House and the Senate are controlled by different parties, is that seat just going to sit open until after the next election? It might. When Mitch McConnell refused to hold hearings from Eric Garland, that was such an incredible violation of norms that if the shoe is ever on the other foot, even determined process and order sluts like myself are going to want to dish out some payback. Though, think about this, if the subsequent election doesn't align the Senate and the White House, is the seat just going to sit vacant for another four years? Honestly, do not rule that out. Either party's base is going to demand exactly that. We have a problem here. There is no regular process for confirming Supreme Court justices anymore. Republicans have managed to engineer a two-thirds majority on the court, despite the fact that they have nothing close to that in terms of popular support. Justices are now timing their retirements and even attempting to time their deaths with dumbbell curls and yoga balls with mixed results. We are eventually, by the way, surely going to have a justice stay past the point of senility because they're trying to hang on until their party gets the White House back. The public has noticed the naked partisanship as well. Appointments are getting ever younger. We're maybe a decade away from some... (laughs) pimple-faced geek being appointed and sold to the public as the Doogie Howser of judges. This is not a good way to do things. We need to reform our process. Of course, reform is one of those words like organic or love that can mean a million different things. So, I'm going to spend most of this episode just clarifying my goals, which I think is where most of the work on this topic is done. Just clarifying my goals which is ultimately going to lead me to a very simple and, frankly, completely unoriginal proposal. So here we go. Defining goals. The discussion in this area is riddled with short-term thinking. Liberals feel that conservatives engineered a supermajority on the court through loopholes and underhanded bullshit. Conservatives are quite pleased with the supermajority they engineered through loopholes and underhanded bullshit, and they don't really want to give it up. I am trying to get beyond all that. I am trying to identify what's wrong with the process and then land on a solution that's going to last long term. With that in mind, here's what are and are not my goals. Number one, I am not trying to take back Neil Gorsuch's seat or pack the court. I have already confessed that if Democrats found themselves in the exact situation that Mitch McConnell found himself after Antonin Scalia died, personally, I would be up for a special one-time-only round of well, 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 it seems that the hunter has become the hunted-style payback. That would, oh, I hope that happens. It would really be delicious. It would be basically Kill Bill with Chuck Schumer in the Uma Thurman role. I would like to be able to will that into existence, but let's be honest here when is that going to happen? It probably won't happen. It's not going to happen in the next three years because Biden is president. It's probably not going to happen in the foreseeable future. Too many planets have to align for us to find ourselves in that situation. So at what point does trying to correct an injustice from the past just become pathetic? At what point do you become (laughs) Will Forte in that I think you should leave sketch? I highly encourage you to Google this. Will Forte I think you should leave, airplane sketch. When do you become that character trying to get revenge on a crying baby 30 years after the fact? I'm sorry I gave away the joke to that sketch, but it's really funny, worth watching. So that's probably not in the cards. I am also, by the way, deeply uncomfortable, deeply uncomfortable, hard to describe how uncomfortable I am with the idea of adding justices. That is the type of thing that dictators do. And after Trump, by the way, I would very much like to move away from constitutionally iffy executive branch power moves. Adding justices is also, by the way, the exact opposite of a sustainable solution, because it will ignite a tit-for-tat cycle of adding justices that is only going to stop when every man, woman, and child in this country is on the Supreme Court. So I don't want to do that. And by the way, I don't think that is a snowball's chance in hell of happening. Let's remember that trying to pack the court is on the short list of bad things that FDR did. And other things on that list, by the way, include maybe cheated on his cousin with another cousin and put people in internment camps. That's a hell of a rap sheet. FDR's proposal was killed by his own party. Republicans didn't kill that. Democrats back then said, I'm not comfortable with this. And the modern round of court packing fever does not appear to be faring any better. The Washington Post reported that, quote, a few, unquote, Democrats openly support the idea. And though progressive activists are never, ever, ever going to understand this concept, no matter how many times you explain it to them, a few votes is just not enough. And P.S., there's that 6-3 conservative majority on the Supreme Court to contend with. Remember that? That would kill it dead if nothing else did. But everything else will. So court packing not going to happen. Goal number two, I am not trying to engineer a bipartisan court. So Pete Buttigieg, who's a guy I like, Pete Buttigieg, put forward a plan for a major overhaul of the court during the 2020 presidential primary. Oh, what heady days those were back during the 2020 presidential primary. We were asking big questions back then. Questions like, should we break up the banks? What about Medicare for All? Should we do that? Should we push for it or should we settle for just adding a public option to Obamacare? How many trillions of dollars, by the way, should we spend on green energy? Three, six, 20. Here's what I wonder. Were we all fucking drunk? What were we on? Why were we talking about that stuff? We were so far out in outer space. Why didn't we debate things that might actually happen in some conceivable universe? My God, I hope we do better next time we do that. Bring it back to something somewhere near the realm of the possible. Jesus Christ, it's so fucking esoteric and pointless when you're talking about nothing that will ever happen. I've gotten off track. Let me get back. The point is, (laughs) I don't really like Pete Buttigieg's plan. He was trying to do something that I personally don't see as a worthwhile goal. He's trying to basically guarantee a court with an even partisan split. Personally, I don't see that as desirable. I think the court should reflect voters' preferences, not guarantee both parties' equal footing, no matter how badly they do in elections. Also, judge's method for achieving his goal, which was a 15-member court with five members of the court chosen by the other 10, it was a big departure from how we currently do things. That process was definitely unwieldy and maybe also not constitutional. And all that brings me to my next goal. Goal number three. I am trying to call for as little change as possible. The more radical the change, the less likely it is to happen. Status quo bias is a powerful force. And the more radical your proposal, the more you sound a bit like a cult leader trying to entice people to move to New Jonestown. Plus, by the way, every wrinkle you add is something new for people to dislike. Whether you are reforming a centuries-old institution or trying to get people to agree on pizza toppings, less is more. Goal number four, I am trying to make it so that appointments are more evenly spread out across presidencies. This is an important one. As I mentioned before, the number of seats that come open per presidential term, it's wildly uneven. Trump again got three. Jimmy Carter got a goose egg. Poor Jimmy Carter. Did that guy kick a leprechaun down the Capitol steps on Inauguration Day? He had the worst fucking luck, I swear. At any rate, the composition of the court should be determined indirectly by the voters, not directly by the icy hand of the Grim Reaper. But history shows that the hand of the Reaper might be a bigger factor. It almost certainly is a bigger factor. In the interest of fairness. And in the interest of making politics less of a morbid supper club in which we sit around like the high rollers on squid game trying to figure out who's going to die next. In the interest of both of those things, I am trying to tilt the balance of power towards the voters. Goal number five, I am trying to make it so that most of a justice's time on the bench is spent during the prime of their career. Let's look at baseball for a second. Statisticians have basically figured out when baseball players peak. It's 27. By the way, extreme sabermetric people in baseball will debate that. You can get dragged into these debates and sabermetrics that last for years. I don't want to do that. Let's just say 27 or thereabouts is the consensus age when baseball players peak. There is surely an arc somewhat like that in basically every career. I don't personally know exactly when a federal judge would peak. But I really doubt it's at age 50, which is Amy Coney Barrett's age, or age 83, which is how old Stephen Breyer is. Ideally, we would have judges who are old enough to have amassed some wisdom, but also young enough to be able to get through oral arguments without having to pause six times to use the bathroom. Now, because of the obvious incentive to appoint young justices, who are going to stick around for a long time so you can really leave your imprint on the court, nominees are getting younger and younger, even as people are living longer. There is a chart in a Bloomberg article called 80 is the new 70 as Supreme Court justices serve longer and longer that tells the whole story. And that story is, yep, sure enough, appointments are getting younger, even though people are living longer and staying on the court longer. This is intuitive. It shows how things have changed in the early days of the country. Imminent death was really the steam that made the machinery run. Did it really matter how old a nominee was in 1790? He was just going to be dead of typhus or a snake bite or something in a month anyway. And by the way, so would you. So what would be the point of getting your wig in a twist? Times have changed, though. From 1789 until 1970, judges sat on the bench for about 14 years. Since then, they typically hang around for 27. By my math, that's almost double. Justices are starting younger, and they're staying until they're older, and it would be better if a judge's tenure was more closely fitted to their peak. Goal number six. I am trying to make the confirmation process more regular. I am not quite sure that we fully realize just how big of a problem we have here. Since Merrick Garland was nominated by Obama and not heard by the Senate. We have not had that situation again. We have not had a nominee sent to a Senate controlled by the opposition party. What is the Senate going to do when that happens? I don't honestly know. Is it still possible to have a justice confirmed with opposition party votes? I don't know. Maybe it is. Maybe a moderate nominee could pick off a couple votes from the Mansion Cinema Collins, Romney crowd. But also, maybe not. If that situation comes up, there is going to be a ton of pressure on the majority leader, whoever that person is, to pull a Mitch McConnell and deny the Senate a vote. Especially if the majority leader is Mitch McConnell, because that is kind of his signature move. We may have reached a point at which it's only realistically possible to have a nominee approved when the president's party also holds the Senate. At the very least, we have a highly irregular process that allows multiple opportunities for randomness and skullduggery. That's right! Skullduggery, I say! It may be possible to build a coalition for court reform by drawing together lawmakers who want to impose some order on this obviously chaotic process. So those are my goals. Where does this lead me? It leads me to what I think is probably the most boring possible conclusion. I think we should impose 18-year term limits on Supreme Court seats. Seats would come open every two years, so one per Congress, two per presidency. As of this recording, it is still not possible to keep people from dying, so a president might get an extra appointment, quote-unquote extra appointment, every now and then if somebody happens to die during their term or if they retire for some odd reason. But those situations are really going to be the exception, not the rule. This idea is absolutely not a new idea. Cornell law professor Robert Crampton proposed it in 2005. Groups including the Bipartisan Commission on the Practice of Democratic Citizenship called for it. So did the Center for American Progress. So did a group called Fix the Court. Justices including, this is interesting, Kagan, Breyer, and John Roberts have expressed support for the idea. Or something very much like it. I think Roberts said 15 years You can find a New York Times op-ed calling for it. House Democrats have written a bill calling for it. The Presidential Commission on the Supreme Court. This is something Biden put together when he came into office. That commission said there is bipartisan support for term limits. The point is, this idea is not my idea. If I ever do have an original idea, oh God, that would be exciting if I had an original idea. If that ever happens, I promise you, I will flag it. But this idea is not it. So when you try to match the idea of 18-year term limits to the four goals and the two non-goals that I laid out before, it does seem like 18-year term limits are basically what I'm looking for. So let's go through the list. I'm trying to affect as little change as possible. It checks that box. It would still be a nine-person court with justices nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate. So none of this Pete Buttigieg justices naming other justices thing nominated by the president, confirmed by the Senate, and justices would serve for a length of time that is traditionally about the norm, 18 years. Goal number two, appointments spread out among presidencies. Check. It would be two per term with, again, quote-unquote extra seats, possible but not common, though if Jimmy Carter somehow gets a second term, don't rule it out, still constitutionally possible if Jimmy Carter gets a second term, he will somehow find a way to get zero nominations, though I'm not exactly sure how. Again, the man has remarkable bad luck. Goal number three, justices generally serve during their peak years. Check. There is a hard out under this system on a justice's tenure, and there is no longer any incentive to appoint someone who's as young as possible. You are not going to see a toddler justice. Side note, would you watch a show called Toddler Justice? thinking of writing a pilot. Finally, goal number four. Would it make the confirmation process more regular? Check. I think so. It would be regular by definition, and if a party kept a seat open for two or even four years when that is not the norm, people would notice. Now, how close is this idea to reality? How close is this idea to being something that could actually happen? Well, the politics of making term limits happen are tricky, to say the least. It would probably require a constitutional amendment. People debate that point. I think it probably would. And long story short, reform will only happen if Republicans and Democrats reach a deal. This is the reality of the situation. Nobody is going to be able to muscle anything through. The votes required to do that are not anywhere close to being there. And that leads me to this conclusion. Court reform is only going to happen if and when Democrats give up the dream of taking back the Gorsuch and Barrett seats. I know that's hard to hear, Democrats. I know we got royally screwed. But here's the truth. We are only going to get those seats back if Providence happens to drop them into our lap. Short of that unlikely scenario, Republicans are simply not going to agree to any reform that erodes their majority. And we do not have the votes to muscle something through without Republicans. So the situation is pretty goddamn clear. Giving up the Gorsuch and Barrett seats is a precondition of reform. Sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but that is where we are. So personally, I think the term limits idea is the closest we're going to get at the moment to a pretty effective solution that could conceivably possibly happen. We're in a weird moment right now. The word reform, reform can't and shouldn't mean Term limits and or court packing and or a forcibly balanced court. Any more than the word school should mean education or a kind of monkey or when you're aroused by a video game character. Words need to have more specific meanings. A word with that many meanings is absolutely useless. If we, and by we I mean Democrats and Republicans who are concerned about this not really workable system for court appointments that we're stuck in right now, if we can coalesce around the idea that reform means term limits, term limits, or possibly some other idea that can win votes, then there might be a future where reform can happen. But if we can't agree on that, then our obviously broken system is just going to continue to be the system. And that's the episode. I am very grateful, by the way, to have an audience that gives half of a shit about topics like Supreme Court reform. This stuff is very abstract. It's understandable that most people look at this issue in terms of, I'm on the blue team, I'm on the red team, are we winning or losing? It's nice to be talking to people who actually give a shit about this stuff. My apologies, by the way, to Richard Howard, author of When the Leaves Come Tumbling Down, which you're listening to right now. If you're listening, Richard, first, congratulations on being 150 years old or whatever, but I'm sorry I didn't riff on your song, I did the thing about Joe Rogan up top instead. I did not give your song the attention it deserves. And I hope that in spite of that, your song's appearance on this podcast causes your YouTube channel to blow up. And you know what, Richard Howard? Please, come on the pod. Talk about your process for writing when the leaves come tumbling down. Especially the choice to say tumbling instead of falling or floating because leaves can't tumble, can they? They're not round. They're not heavy, anyway. Standing invitation to presumably long-dead songwriter Richard Howard. That's today's episode. All my stuff can be found at imightberong.substack.com. I will be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you very much for listening, and bye for now.